and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we are normally uh, watching movies from every year sequentially, starting in 1895. We've watched many movies, uh, and this year, this episode, <laughs> we are talking about the entire 1920s, wrapping up the decade and giving our, our summary thoughts on what's been going on in the world of silent film in the 1920s and the beginning of sound film. Uh, and uh, we're going to we're gonna keep it cash. We have our top 10 lists of the decade of 1920, uh, or the 1920s. I am excited to hear yours. We've also uh, watched a few movies that cover the era, cover the, the film industry of the era. I am Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Covell, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah, welcome to our our chill uh, decade and review episode, and uh, and we're keeping it chill. You're you're drinking yeah. some you're drinking some alcohol. I am. I got a, 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 a era appropriate bees knees cocktail, and I have an era appropriate uh, glacier freeze <laughs> uh, Gatorade. <laughs> They love that in 29. Let me tell you. Yeah, they were just they were just nuts for it. They couldn't they couldn't drink bees knees. It was prohibition yeah. times. That's right. They had to stick to Gatorade. Um. Yeah. How's it going, Glenn? What's up? Going pretty good. I uh I just got back from two different trips I took recently. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm a little I'm a little beat, but um. Yeah, it feels good to do things. So nice to travel see other places that's always fun for sure did i tell you that i'm uh going to south korea in like two months i think i'd forgotten but yes i'm i'm hyped for that definitely yeah that, uh that's rules yeah never I been to... but i hear it's great uh, same <laughs> unless you're on a particular train to busan well <laughs> uh god that one specific train yes don't take that one yeah it's got a number. It's it's very specific. Uh, well, oh, I guess I should say what I'm doing. <laughs> I yeah. What uh, are you, what are you up to? Yeah. This? Why don't you ever ask me any questions, Glenn? Why don't you uh, Why don't you care how I'm doing? <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I we just did at uh, at Denver Film. We just did the Cinema Q Film Festival. Uh, it's fit the 15th year anniversary of Colorado's only queer film festival. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, we had Udo Kier over to oh, talk dang. about uh, Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. Uh, and then I'm also done projecting Oppenheimer. And I finally got to watch it. I saw it in 70mm, non-IMAX 70mm, but it was beautiful in 70mm. Mm. Makes 35 look like garbage. I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a whole lot of extra millimeters they got there, so... It's like another thirty-five, right? And then it's it's then like double that for IMAX. So Cause yeah, because it's, it's rotated. Yeah, I mean, I would say maybe a little more than double, but yes. Yeah, I'm staring at a piece of IMAX film that's behind the camera and trying to yeah. picture it right now. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, I think we should start with our like overall thoughts on on this decade of film history. Yeah. Like, what are our takeaways kind of i don't feel like i have a big thesis of like what my takeaways were this is the decade where silent movies really came into their own 
uh, yeah. silent features in particular. I think they'd mastered the art of the short in the tens. Uh, but it was pretty feature wise, stylistically a little rough in the 1910s. Mm-hmm. And I remember in our 1920 episode, I was talking about how I was like, oh, the second that we entered this decade, everything looks like it's done so much more competently now, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, and it did feel like an almost immediate shift into like, all right, now we're off to the races. Now people actually know what they're doing, kind of, yeah. and can actually have fun with it. Yeah, it, it became a huge business. I mean, there's so much thinking and research to be done about uh, just like the way that the industry was in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. It's kind of spectacular how quickly it kind of became an established, enormous entity right Mm -hmm. it was it was hollywood by this point and you know in in the way that we think of it now yeah Yeah. it kind of snuck up on us in a way you know like like Mm -hmm. in the in the early 1910s i feel like it was all a lot more ramshackle a lot more like diy and then it just became this enormous thing this juggernaut uh all to be brought down by the jazz singer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by the the demon microphone <laughs> um yeah i feel like just in terms of like doing this show too like it became so much harder to figure out what we should watch and like research became a much like i feel like we did a lot more research for this last decade of movies and yet it still feels like we only kind of scratched the surface like oh yeah we read up a lot and like there was a lot of stuff that we left on the table in the 1910s but the 1920s there's just so much information so many books so many documentaries so many just so much information about this decade that it was a little difficult to kind of parse through it all and figure out kind of prioritize what was the most important things to talk about yeah but i think we did an okay job i think that like uh you know in the very beginning there was a lot of research that we had to do on our own because uh this the the canon of the silent you know to to the degree that the silent era is paid attention to at all in the canon of film history uh it's paid attention to even less the second after the lumieres are done with their premiere you know <laughs> up until the 1920s or up Pretty until much, birth, yeah. birth of a nation unfortunately so we had to do a lot more research then and there was also just like less meat to the movies in the beginning mm. And now the movies kind of stand on their own in many ways as narrative artistic works. And so we can kind of hone in on the the work, the, the work itself, rather than mm. this kind of surrounding context. Although context is nice, for sure. Yeah. A difference that I noticed between the 1910s and 1920s, in terms of like how we did the show, kind of, is like, because there's a lot less written about the 1910s, it felt like we were kind of discovering a bit more. We weren't actually discovering anything. We were just right. sort of like fine, discovering stuff for ourselves, I guess, of like a lot more stuff that we'd never heard of yeah. that was really cool and interesting and like yeah. developing new technologies and techniques and things. Whereas the 20s is a lot more of like, oh yeah, this this famous thing. Right. Oh, yeah, Caligari, Nosferatu, Metropolis. Like it's like, it's stuff, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. It's stuff that we we had at least a passing familiarity with that I think I certainly feel like I was able to dig a lot deeper into and learn way more about than I did before. But it's like, it feels less sort of 
there was a bit less of a sense of kind of discovery, I guess, than in the in the tens. A bit more of like digging deeper into kind of established stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like the twenties was overwhelming in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and yeah. you know we've mentioned before doing this podcast that uh, the more that we dig into this stuff, the more that it makes us want to just go even deeper into one year right mm -hmm. uh so you know in, in some ways this podcast is about depth like we are watching a handful like a, a trying to get a representative slice of movies from every year and we're going deep on movie history but mm -hmm. also it is limited in just how much we can do for each year and yeah. and I really felt the pain of that <laughs> lately because I feel like in the 1910s, there were a lot of like hidden gems, but like not as far as we saw, not like a huge amount of things that just like knocked your socks off that like mm -hmm. were not in the kind of established canon. Uh, yeah. But the 1920s has that in spades. Yeah. Um, there were there were a few like fun surprises and like things I'd never heard of that we watched in the twenties. That was it was nice to have that too of like the established like classics and then also stuff that I I had never heard of mm -hmm. that also knocked my socks off. So a big sock knocker of a decade. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just insist on saying weird things whenever possible. <laughs> <laughs> Never change. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, this decade ended with the introduction of popular movies, po popular feature films that incorporated sync sound mm -hmm. in the wake of The Jazz Singer. Thereby kind of fundamentally changing the uh, the industry forever, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think it... it certainly for a time really significantly changed like the art of how movies were made also i think yeah i mean it definitely did going forward but i mean like there was that initial i feel like i had it in my head kind of like there was this like all right as soon as we get into sound like movies are the same they just have sound in them and i did not anticipate oh no they they regress <laughs> like i know <noticed laughs> oh, no such they a suck sense now <laughs> of, well yeah and such a sense of like in the 1900s movie like so many movies were just filmed vaudeville acts right mm -hmm. of just like here's like a dog ju that juggles yeah or whatever and with the introduction of, of sound it kind of regresses back to that thing where it's like we're just gonna film a bunch of musical numbers that were performed on broadway a month ago like that's all we've got glenn is so bitter about coconuts it's it's bleeding, <laughs> it's bleeding through right here <laughs> not just coconuts i feel like uh broadway melody felt much like that well, at least it was an original story true um a terrible one but uh... but but there is kind of that sense of like we're just gonna kind of film things that worked well on stage that are you know comedy acts musical acts whatever mm -hmm. and the sort of like high drama of like silent film kind of it feels like it 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 went away for a bit like people were so excited about the prospect of talking and singing in pictures that that's kind of all that they focused on for a little while yeah and you know i think this is something that we've mentioned before but as 
silent movies were just hitting this like artistic peak like right mm. when silent sound film started yeah like between 28 like 27 28 29 were like some of the best silent movies ever made yeah i would bring that back to like 25 24 even too but yeah. like yeah so something we've mentioned before but is worth mentioning again is just the shame in a way that mm. we didn't get a few more years of this golden silent period uh where just this emo- most amazing stuff was being made yeah they had to just clear way to make kind of crappy movies <laughs> at, yeah at the beginning of the sound era yeah because I, 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 something i kind of knew about before but was sort of driven home all the more with like the research i did was like how kind of how quickly that shift happened and how like imposed it was on people like Hmm. not everyone wanted to make sound movies but studios were just like we we paid for all the microphones we're gonna use them Hmm. yeah and and also it's like you know it was so much of an infrastructural change that like once it got going it couldn't stop yeah i guess there there are some details that we can get into with uh one of the things one of the more contemporary things that we watched for this episode but yeah like there was definitely a sense of of like loss and like upheaval when that happened and like it's i guess it's so right my reaction to those early talkies that we watched was like oh my god these movies have gotten so much worse and i was glad to see that there were a lot of contemporary reactions that were similar to that of people being like what are we even doing this for like (laughs) this is pointless which i don't know it feels like it's it's nice to see that people had that thought in the moment like we're losing something by by like completely shifting this in such a rapid way yeah uh well do we want to move on to that do we want to talk about some of our our things that we watched for this episode yeah i guess we could start with because i'm basically almost talking about it already um the last episode of the 1980s british miniseries called hollywood which we only really had time to watch one episode of. I think there's 13 episodes total. Mm-hmm. They reach about an hour long. They're all available on- online for free. It's all narrated by um, James Mason, which is great. Uh, I'd love to go back and watch every episode because just the last one about the sound transition was super fascinating and features so many interviews with people from the era because it's made in the 80s and all of them were still alive that it's like firsthand stories about this stuff which is i don't know it just adds such an uh, immediacy to it yeah yeah and this this came to us from i don't i don't know how but somehow in my research leading up to this point i had really not like been aware of this show and uh i've been aware of the person then who's chiefly behind it uh, kevin brownlow but mm. this was this came as a um as a listener recommendation so thank you for Indeed. that yeah uh because yeah this show uh is great it's really good uh mm-hmm. I, it the the episode was like 50 minutes long but it took me twice as long because i kept having to like take notes and go backwards because it was so fascinating yeah. but the 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 way it ends is with this story of douglas fairbanks made his last douglas fairbanks like saw the jazz singer was like aware of that like this like massive shift towards sync sound movies and he was just like nope i don't care for that i'm gonna make a silent movie with swashbuckling like i always do (laughs) and he made uh iron mask 
which is the book is a sequel to the three musketeers and he had made a three musketeers movie already so he made it as a sequel to the one he already did and by the end of it he was like uh oh, what is the quote the romance of filmmaking is gone or something like that in that episode all those interviews with uh with different silent era people it's very mournful you know it's very yeah like, yeah it was fun and then it was not fun anymore <laughs> yeah i mean the i said before the demon microphone which is a quote from that that thing there was such resistance to it from actors and filmmakers and crew people and everyone of just like oh my god this sucks like what we had such a good thing going why are we ruining this by having to like change everything there's a really like morbid sort of detail um i forget who said it in the episode but they described how there was uh quote suicides galore among the thousands of orchestra musicians that were put out of work between 1928 yeah. and 1932 across the country it went from 22,000 to 4,000 uh in 1932 yeah yeah and it's like yeah just put thousands of people out of work like you had all these people playing music in theaters and suddenly it's like we don't need you anymore yeah we have people... a terror we have a terrible speaker that's gonna pump <laughs> music through to the people and not even you know people directly involved in hollywood people all over the country kind of small-time people who are making their mm -hmm. living doing improvisational scores to movies it's uh it, it kind of speaks to the in the structural horrors that can happen <laughs> Uh, just based on pretty small decisions of powerful people. Yeah. Yeah, it, I think hearing the kind of first-hand accounts of it kind of... Because it was a thing that I knew was disruptive and there was resistance to, but just hearing it from the people's own mouths and their voices is sort of like... It, it gives it a, a more perspective, I think, of kind of the human toll of that, of like how how much kind of was lost yeah. in in this shift which is like overall has really kind of only benefited filmmaking as a as a medium i guess right it's like it's it's another tool to tell a story right mm -hmm. you might as well if you can record sound you might as well have sound but it is like yeah it's like for the for the people who are making movies at the time it feels like such a yeah like you said mournful thing which mm -hmm. i think uh at least one of the movies that we watched for this episode i think kind of nails that feeling hmm. one sort of thing i found interesting about this episode of the miniseries is that because it came out in the 1980s they're talking about the earliest sync sound movies and they talk about the uh the dixon sound experiment yeah <laughs> which we we covered in our first episode of the show and that's sort of the earliest known example of like motion picture and sound being synchronized in any mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. and but because this was made in the 80s they didn't have the audio yet like it hadn't been rediscovered and so they show the clip of you know the film but they're like oh and the sound is long it's long since been lost and i'm like oh but it hasn't anymore like they found it and we listened to it it's um, so cool so that, that was like a cool a cool moment yeah for sure they this episode I forget if we mentioned is each episode is kind of themed on a different aspect of Hollywood in the silent era. And this one is specifically themed on the end of the silent era and the transition to mm -hmm. sound. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the beginning of the episode about 
uh, like just the development of sound and how mm-hmm. it found its way into the movie industry. So it kind of posits that uh, the way that this kind of all got started was that Warner Brothers was trying to do radio ads and they brought radio and microphone people into their studios to do radio ads, audio engineers and all of that. And then they're like, hey, we got this. Like, let's play around with it a little more, you know? Uh, And so Western Electric and Warner Brothers teamed up to create Vitaphone, uh, which was the sound on disc uh, versus the sound on film of, uh, oh, what's his name? Movie Movie Tone. Movie Movie Tone. Tone. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Lee DeForest, though, was the was the other one who did sound on film through a different mm-hmm. process than movie tone. All of these people trying to do these experiments and sneak stuff into the movies, uh, sne- sneak sound into the movies, were roundly dismissed and disliked by other people who were like, "You're poisoning our craft." Basically, stop with this. <laughs> stop with this chintzy garbage. <laughs> yeah. Although it's funny, like. One thing I think watching this documentary and also like watching some of their early sound films, it kind of gave me more of an appreciation for the jazz singer. Like, I wasn't super hot on it when we watched it. Mm -hmm. And then like thinking back on it, like it does use sound really well, especially compared to the stuff we've seen since. (laughs) Like, even though it, it only has like a few scenes with sync sound in it, it's recorded well it's it's used you know effectively to tell the story it's telling mm-hmm. versus i feel like a lot of the later stuff is just like i, I don't know just have people talk or whatever <laughs> yeah. yeah there are parts of this episode where they show some early sound acting and, mm-hmm. and just they just let you sit with how atrocious it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also like it kind of made me think about how it's it's less like it is both but it's kind of less like talking in movies that kind of killed silent stuff and more singing like singing was the big draw for so many of these early sound Mm. films of like they sing now which is uh i don't know like a a slight distinction it is both of those things that were like there was novelty to both for sure and Mm -hmm. i think another thing the jazz singer does well is it like it has all the improvisational like banter dialogue in it which is feels so so much more naturalistic and less stagey than a lot of the the other talkies that we watched yeah it's hard to say why maybe he's just a more you know comfortable performer than these other people uh yeah i i think it was also that thing of like he was riffing it was less of this sort of like very staged like you gotta hit your mark exactly and like talk right into the microphone like he probably had a better sense of that maybe than a lot of the because he was a you know a stage performer Mm -hmm. a big thing both the other movies that we watched have in them is like silent actors who don't know how to act with microphones yeah and that is a true thing like that comes from real life yeah another kind of anecdote in this is how they were kind of trying out people for how they sounded uh, yeah retrying out all of these established actors like so they, does does wallace beery have a good voice or not <laughs> and then they'd come out and they'd say wallace berry has a voice harold lloyd <laughs> has a voice i don't know 
I, I I do like I think there's a lot of really good info in this documentary, but some parts of it made me wonder if it is the kind of thing that is uncritically buying into some of the narrative around all of this stuff hmm. rather than looking at it with a with a critical eye and saying like, okay, but like these kind of grand stories, are they true? You know, <laughs> like how yeah. true are they? There are a number of great anecdotes in this aside from all the ones that we've talked about i mean getting at some of the stuff you said earlier about how like there was this domineering presence of the audio people uh Mm, there was uh i think the narration said filmmakers were ruled by the man in the monitor room sound men were hard to find and few questioned their competence uh and then george kukor uh was saying that they they were inclined to be bullying the the sound the sound guys uh, more or less like basically making direction choices and not knowing mm-hmm. how to direct because they're yeah. like, if you want to record audio, you got to do what I'm telling you to do, basically. Yeah. Which may have been a contributor to these kind of low quality early sound yeah. movies. And it's funny. It's funny that that is how it was in like 1928, 29, because I, I feel like <laughs> on so many sets, sound people are like the just not paid attention to or like given <laughs> enough respect like sound people are super important and i feel like on a lot of sets they're like people can kind of see them as like maybe i'm talking mostly about like student films because that's the majority of the sets that i've been on but uh yeah i think there's this like oh sound and they're like we gotta we gotta hold for the we gotta hold for the plane <laughs> can we get room tone <laughs> which i mean and yeah if, the, if like if that's your only interaction with the person for like a week is just them like saying you need to stop what you're doing then yeah that's annoying but but this is what happens when you give them power speaking as a <laughs> speaking as a former sound guy don't give sound guys power <laughs> yeah that's that's why that's why they still to this day are are uh are are disrespected on sets is because they they had so much power in the beginning it's to keep the and natural they, and, they, and, they, and they have used it yeah <laughs> And it's having sort of seen fictionalized portrayals of this stuff. It's cool to listen to people talk about it with firsthand experience to know that like there's there's some element of truth to those things. Yeah. One other detail from this that I thought was really interesting was just the way that sound changed the the way that movies were filmed. It changed physical Mm -hmm. aspects of the process of making films which is something that both of the movies that we're talking about touch on in particular how the camera was too loud so it had to be put in a box Mm -hmm. uh, that was an unbearably hot box for Mm -hmm. the for the camera guy to to be in um it seems that maybe directly inspired by this quote from this documentary you know we're talking about babylon later which has somebody dying in one of those, uh, one of those camera boxes. Le- legitimately, one of my favorite parts of that whole movie. <laughs> Frank Capra tells a story in this documentary about yeah. how he had a cameraman who like passed out or fainted or something yeah. in yeah. in the booth because of how hot it was. It changed the lighting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah, the old arc lights were too loud, and they had to get uh, I think sodium vapor lights which were quieter but way hot contributing then contributing to everyone being uncomfortable on set all the time yeah including people being so covered in sweat that they had to change out their clothes every hour (laughs) Uh, which uh sounds awful (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they talk about in like some of the early sound shorts, they'd bring in opera singers, but the lights were so hot that as soon as they opened their mouth to sing, it would like dry out their tonsils. Insanity. <laughs> really great documentary series. I'm, I'm excited to watch more of it. Yeah, yeah, me too. So I guess we can move on to some of the feature films, fiction feature mm. films that we watched for this episode. Indeed. Uh, I think no better place to start than... I think before we talk about either of those two, I yeah. want to do a quick a quick side note. Okay. And talk a, a little bit about... Because I think it's important context for both of these movies. In 1929, MGM made a movie called The Hollywood Review, which was not a narrative movie. It was, as it says, a review. It was just a stage show or, you know, several stage shows. It's all like musical numbers comedy bits uh there's no through line there's no framing narrative there's it's just look at this you know fun expensive thing that we filmed it's all of the mgm like stock company players that they had under contract at the, at the time all doing different their own things like buster keaton has like an underwater dance routine that he does which is all silent of course there is a song called Lon Chaney's Gonna Get You If You Don't Watch Out, which is, it's like a song slash ghost story of like a guy surrounded by all these like scantily clad women in beds, like Lon Chaney's gonna get you if, you know, he'll, he'll pop out of the closet or whatever. One, I think it's just a very funny bit in general, but it's funny that there was an actor that was so famous for playing monsters that they wrote a song about him as if he was a real monster. <laughs> it's like if someone wrote a song about Doug Jones. Was gonna, Doug like, Jones. Doug Jones will, like he is a real monster and lives under your bed. Mac tonight's gonna get you. Yeah, but so that is just very funny to me. The thing, this, the only thing this movie is really famous for is it is where the song "Singing in the Rain" doesn't actually come from. It popularized it. It was it was on broadway in a different review show before this hmm. but it's sort of what took it to kind of great heights of fame or helped it go to great heights of fame and fortune it's at least three times in the movie it plays over the opening credits in an orchestral version there is a very long segment featuring um cliff edwards also known as ukulele ike who does does it as a sort of ukulele version with backup dancers and singers and then the sort of big finale is a technicolor version of it with like all the mgm players including buster keaton and john gilbert and marion davies and they're all singing it in front of noah's ark which is like made fun of in babylon they're like why are they in front of noah's ark because it's raining this movie is sort of the reason i mean it's the reason why the movie singing in the rain exists and Singing in the Rain is kind of the reason why Babylon exists. So it's sort of like, it feels important to kind of just talk about it a little bit. Just give a little bit of context. Like, this is where a lot of this stuff is coming from. Or at least this song, right? Mm -hmm. That then in the 50s, they decide to like, let's make a whole movie out of just this song. Yeah. And so that movie is Singing in the Rain, obviously. Yeah. Uh and it very much concerns this era of the transition mm -hmm. from of yeah. the golden era of Hollywood and the transition from silent to sound. And uh, this movie, I don't know, you know, I don't know if we're reviewing movies 
for this, but like mm, I wouldn't call it reviewing. I mean, we're giving opinions on them, but yeah. it's more. I would say it's more analysis than anything. Uh, well, we're not looking at this one in its historical context, and usually we try and. Right. I, I, I think I think the two of us have both independently decided like let's not watch anything up until like the 1950s or 60s uh, to keep it pure for the cast. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, Singing in the Rain is an amazing movie. It's so yeah. good. Uh, yeah, I had never seen it. <laughs> yeah, tell me your thoughts. Good movie. I mean, I think like narratively, it's it's very kind of like a lot of other like 50s musicals. It's it's pretty. Th- thin narratively a lot of scenes feel like they're just kind of an excuse to have a musical number but i like how this movie almost points that out at certain points i got no problem with this like this that's the other thing (laughs) the musical numbers in this movie are so incredibly good that Yeah. yeah i don't care this this movie is maybe the most infectiously fun movie ever uh it's i show this movie to people who say they don't like old movies and that they don't like Mm. musicals because within a few minutes of singing of watching sing in the rain you're like oh this is this has like a great comedic sensibility to it like the the dialogue is so fun between the characters you really feel this like sense of joy and yeah just it's great (laughs) yeah yeah it is very infectiously fun for whatever complaints I have about, like, the narrative of this movie, which I have, like, a few, like, I don't know, I know, I don't feel like I really got that emotionally invested in, like, what the characters were going through. I found even the ending of it to be kind of almost weirdly mean at times. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about, spoilers, ruining someone's career by, like, publicly humiliating them. Like, yeah, she's but kind she's of a evil. jerk. evil. She's not evil. She's just spoiled and a jerk. Like, I don't know. That was like, I, I felt a little bit bad. They were just like, hey, let's ruin her entire week and possibly life. But yeah, it's a, it's a very good movie and very relevant to like what we've been talking about. Like it, it does. I mean, yeah, like even though this movie is older than I think the other stuff that we watched as like contemporary film. It is still removed enough, I think, that, um, yeah, it's not part of the same era that it's depicting, for sure. Like, there's a big difference. Yeah, it's it's set, or it's it's made something like 25 years after it's set. Yeah, which isn't that long uh, when you think about it, but it's still enough that it's, like, it's from a very clearly different era of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is kind of funny slash interesting about this movie is it it is kind of... It is exactly the type of movie that killed silent movies of a, like, yeah. big musical with, like, pretty loose narrative to it that is just all about, like, ah, oh, look at this great singing and dancing and, and funny, witty banter that we've got going on. But I think the movie's kind of aware of that, too, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. And there is still almost that sense of kind of, like, wistfulness of like the end of an era to it yeah yeah it's it's definitely i mean it's one of the hollywood movies about hollywood that doesn't really like make me roll my eyes you know Mm. uh it's there it's earnest it's loving of its subject matter and its era i think a lot of the people who are involved in this movie kind of had firsthand experience with this era in particular, Arthur Freed and uh, Nacio Herb Brown, 
uh, who were writing who this this is I had never really realized this until I had kind of watched all of these movies and and uh, and seen the Broadway melody. But Sing in the Rain is kind of a jukebox musical. Yeah, it is a jukebox so. musical of these two guys' songs, who many of which they did for uh, for MGM. And there's only one original song in this movie, uh, but there's a lot of new arrangements, mm-hmm. and including songs from Broadway Melody, two songs yeah. from Broadway Melody, and some from the Broadway Review, other things, other things from from stuff from the 30s. But an interesting creature that, as far as just yeah. structurally and and where its music is coming from. I mean, I don't know if I knew up until like maybe a year ago that this movie is not where the song Singing in the Rain comes from. Mm-hmm. Like, it might have been Babylon, actually, that where I learned that, oh, that is a real song from the 20s, that then Singing in the Rain is like, oh, yeah, we're, we took that song and we made, like, we incorporated it into this musical about that time period. Yeah. But it's like, this movie is so famous that it's, I would imagine most people, there's probably a lot of people who can, sing all the lyrics or most of the lyrics to the song that don't know it's actually from the 1920s yeah this is certainly the most famous instantiation of all of this music (laughs) yeah yeah until stanley kubrick ruined it i don't know about that i uh... (laughs) he didn't ruin it but you know um it is uh that's the whole point of his use of it is like taking this very joyful thing and making it dark and creepy and upsetting what an edgelord yeah, truly. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick Edgelord. Future episode title. <laughs> when we talk about Clockwork Orange. But yeah, like so many... Like I had seen... I'd probably seen the entire like Singing in the Rain number in this movie before. Sure. Like that whole like that whole scene I've, I've probably seen more than once. Um, it's in... It's one of those things that's in every like history of film montage, you know? Yes, yes. They do like Trip to the Moon singing in the rain like it's one of those things but there's a lot of other great scenes in this movie that i had definitely not seen Mm -hmm. there's the one that is mostly all silent i think like in terms of there's no lyrics to the music where there's it's like in the middle of the like broadway section when it suddenly becomes this like ethereal dreamscape with like clouds and it's sort of referencing back to an earlier number right where they go to the studio and he turns on the lights and the backdrop and he's like there's clouds and there's you know sunlight and all this stuff mm-hmm. oh yeah great scene super romantic love that scene but then later on there's the one where they're just in this like massive open i don't know cloudscape i don't even know what to call it <laughs> i don't even understand why it happens it just is amazing <laughs> and there's like a gi- the woman's got this giant scarf that's like a mile long that's blowing in the wind and it's just like oh look at this this is incredible yeah honestly it's like it's like one of the best parts of the movie but like also one of the worst parts of the movie this broadway melody scene uh it's yeah. this very extended part it's like half an hour long <laughs> <laughs> it's not half an hour long but it is very long uh it's this extended part that is just basically indulging in this movie has always taken place in the real world and and it's this extended scene of just imaginative uh uh what we can do with musicals and what kind of imagery we can make with movies 
and uh and just going wild with it but see i love how it then fully kind of acknowledges and like kind of makes fun of all of that by the characters describing this as like and we're like going into his brain of like what this thing would look like and he's like how's and then it just cuts back to you know reality and he's like how does that sound and the producer's like i don't know i don't know if i can picture it (laughs) which apparently is uh a real thing that someone said yeah yeah Art, not about that movie but the the producer rf is kind of meant to be an analog of arthur freed uh this mm. producer of many musicals and i guess yeah. that was one of his uh one of the catchphrases <laughs> but yeah i guess loosely this movie is um about a kind of douglas fairbanks type who uh is making who is extremely popular he uh has a kind of publicist arranged relationship with a a horrible mean person who uh uh has a terrible voice and they they everyone knows that she has a terrible voice they keep her away from microphones (laughs) at all costs so like the reveal of her of her voice is very funny (laughs) very very famous reveal i think of her like very high-pitched kind of nasal voice that everyone finds off-putting uh, and she doesn't have good diction and can't sing. Um, and is just generally a very conceited, annoying person. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's right. Like I get like, you know, if you're, if this movie's taking place in real life that, you know, it seems excessive to ruin her career at the end of the movie. But like, if you know, you don't, you don't weep over the, uh, the lost life of someone in a horror movie because it's like, oh, they deserved it, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I I guess maybe I was just in the wrong headspace in the moment. I don't know. But I was like, this is a little mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this movie's interesting in that, like, there is a bit of meanness in it, but it always, mm-hmm. to me, it always, like, pulled right back before it was, like, losing the, the charm of it, you know? Right, yeah. It's all it all feels like it's done in 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 good fun. Like it's it's the movie never takes itself that seriously and I think that it helps everything just go down a lot easier when people are sort of like sniping at each other or kind of being nasty because they're doing so in in very kind of comedic ways. Yeah, in particular, uh you know, the main the main character played by uh Gene Kelly, he mm. uh is obviously not much of a fan of of her. And uh, he ends up kind of meet cuting into this other, uh, this other woman, who they By kind of jumping in her car. Yeah, <laughs> and and there's all this like really c- kind of charming back and forth of them being really petty with each other, uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but but in like a playful way, and like everything that they say is very funny, and it's just I don't know, it's it's a yeah. it feels it feels nice. But um, it's it's one of those things that is should feel very kind of effortless and charming that I think this movie does pull off that I feel like so many movies don't when they have mm. like a romantic relationship that is built off of this sort of like aggressive sort of like undercutting or like, you know, it's like they they act like they really hate each other for the whole runtime until they finally just admit like, never mind, I love you. (laughs) But But like you buy it. Unless they're super charming that entire time, like, yeah, it's, it, I think that's a very difficult thing to pull off that I've seen bungled a lot. Because, like, every time, 
you know, it's this back and forth of they get one over each other, right? Mm-hmm. And every time it happens, I was just giggling, you know, because right. yeah. it's all just so fun and it's not like excessively mean. So <laughs> so it it works. Uh and then as soon as they get together, uh it's it's him, his best friend, and uh and the the woman he is in love with who I'm terrible. Lena Lamont. Lena Lamont. Played by Gene Hagen. Is that Lena? Oh, Lena what? is the uh, is the one who can sing. Yeah. Uh, no, Kathy. Kathy's Isn't the Kathy one who the can one sing. Who can sing? Am I completely getting this mixed up? Yeah, Debbie Reynolds okay. is is Kathy, who is the the one who he runs into and and meet cutes with and and oh, okay. Uh, and once the three of them are together, uh, Cosmo, Kathy, and Donald. Uh, or Don, <laughs> uh, they uh, are just an unstoppable force of good vibes. <laughs> and Yeah. I mean, any, anytime you get together with two people and you just have to do an entire musical number just to like get a thought out. That's, that's a, that's a good vibes. Yeah. <laughs> In this movie, apart from the kind of romantic angle, uh, Don Lockwood, Gene Kelly and uh, Lena Lamont are, they're facing the end of the silent era. And so they, they're about to start on a new movie called the dueling cavalier. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and right on the first day of shooting, uh, at, while, while they're taking advantage of there being no sound so that they can say mean things to each other <laughs> while making out basically. Yeah. The producer comes in and says, cut it. Everybody go home for a few weeks. We're doing sound now. <laughs> yeah. and Which uh, is, like, exaggerated, but probably not that far off from, like, how things actually went. Like, yeah. movies did actually, like, try to convert, like, after they were finished or while they were in production. So, mm-hmm. I don't know if they were just like, everyone go home for a week, but <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and then, uh, so the movie, like, details a lot of the ways that sound recording at the beginning was very difficult. Uh, it's got this really extended scene of uh, Lena having no awareness mm-hmm. of what she's doing or ability to talk into a microphone. Uh, and maybe the like second most famous scene in this movie. Yeah, like the only the only other one having not seen it that I was like aware of for sure. So like yeah, you know, she has to talk into the microphone that's hidden inside of a pot of flowers, and she's just kind of absentmindedly uh, having her her brooklyn accent like brooklyn some some new yorky accent uh uh fading in and out of the microphone as she leans in each direction uh which is also that's like it's very exaggerated in this movie to great comedic effect but it's like that does happen when it's someone you know isn't on axis on their mic and it just they get, oh, Pierre! <laughs> I don't know if that. I don't. I don't know how to do it. How to do it properly? Get the the proper um... the proper Doppler. Yeah, the proper <laughs> Doppler. Thank you. That's the that's my nickname in high school. <laughs> uh... You're running down a lot of hallways. <laughs> <laughs> and so they they start making the talky version of the movie, and turns out it stinks. Yeah. So. All the acting's bad. Voices don't sound good. Yeah, when it's bad, they're they're used to just being able to say whatever, and so there's a kind of complicated line that 
one of the things that he always that Don always does is kind of just vamp nonsense words. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, when he's pretending to uh, care at all about Lena Lamont. Uh, mm-hmm. So he just, uh, there's a particular line that he has a hard time saying. And so he's just like, you mind if I do my normal thing? I'll just go, I love you. 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 And that line does not go over well in the in the <laughs> theater. Uh, everyone's laughing and they're saying that the acting's terrible and the movie's terrible and their careers are over. Oh, no. Yeah. What can they do? What can they do? Make it a musical. <laughs> <laughs> we'll turn the dueling cavalier into the dancing cavalier. Uh, which is just objectively a good idea. I think it makes it makes the movie better. Right. And uh, that's what they do. They they well they have to they have to do it sneakily. It then becomes almost more of a sort of Ocean's Eleven style <laughs> film where they're they're trying to then reshoot this movie as a musical without Lena Lamont knowing because she can't sing or act with audio, so they have to try to kind of like do it around her so she doesn't find out. And they they plan on dubbing all of her dialogue and singing with uh kathy's voice because she has a great voice lena finds out and uh tries to sort of force kathy into being her voice on film for five years like contractually uh thereby ruining her own like kathy's career prospect because she would be stuck just dubbing lena's voice the whole time she'd be dubbing over some bozo yeah <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Which then, yeah, leads to the, the big finale where they, uh, Lena is going out to sing in front of the audience because they think she has a great voice. And then Kathy's behind the curtain and they raise the curtain up so everyone can see that it's actually Kathy's voice. And everyone goes, ha, 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 ha. What a bozo. <laughs> uh, and then happy ending. Yeah. Gene Kelly. Great in this movie. The tap dancing is amazing. The, the tap dancing amazing. is him and Donald O'Connor both are phenomenal tap dancers. Watching this movie makes me want to learn how to tap. I was like, thinking that too. <laughs> it is it, it's it looks like it's so much fun. I'm sure it's a huge pain to actually learn how to do it properly and it takes years and years and years of practice to get remotely good. Years and years of annoying practice, especially if you live in an apartment. <laughs> yeah, annoying to other people. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, like you said, this movie has a real kind of infectious joy to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is really emblematic. Emblematic? No. It's made... That's not a word, but... Sure. It's emblemized in uh, the make them laugh sequence uh, Mm. from Donald O'Connor, who... It's just in a... That's the original song in the movie, and it is so joyous. It's it so is insane. Fun. And it's just, yeah, him, him just acting crazy and just yeah. doing the wildest physical comedy all packed in to yeah. three minutes while he's singing about how the, his purpose in life is to make people laugh. Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly's characters sort of came up in vaudeville and then got into, into pictures. Which feels very head. correct. Yes, absolutely. But I, it also, especially that, that number specifically, I think feels very much like a kind of throwback to like silent comedy and vaudeville acts mm-hmm. um which is another kind of fun thing about this movie is in that even though it's like not 
that much later it it does still ha- kind of have this sort of throwback sort of celebratory feeling about a silent film even though it is not a silent film by any stretch it has uh has reverence for the era another thing about this movie and a lot of just older movies in general um is how kind of how do i don't know i i feel like it's rare to see movies now that aren't like explicitly like romances that are this romantic Hmm. that are this have this much like yearning and like staring into eyes and shit (laughs) that i feel like is is kind of i know i I don't know i think about how, how what passes for like a romantic subplot in movies now and it's garbage compared to this you know oh yeah like you feel it in this movie like the the art of like flirty dialogue in movies is is has been so watered down i feel like um maybe i'm just watching the wrong movies i don't know if you have suggestions of good romantic flirty dialogue movies let me know i mean it's probably just stuff from the 30s to 50s you know right yeah true but so yeah there, there's a lot in this movie to enjoy for sure the next movie we're talking about we've already said what it is babylon it's almost easier to talk about that in relation to this almost because that movie is almost a remake of this movie i have been saying since i first saw babylon when it came out like a year ago i have been saying this is a stealth remake of singing or it's not it's not a stealth remake it is a stealth singing in the rain fan fiction it is a, <laughs> it is a it is a, a a dirty singing in the rain fan fiction it's, it's sort of it's funny my a thought that i had rewatching babylon this time is it reminded me of forgotten silver mm-hmm. of like here's like the secret unknown history of all this stuff that you know about and it's like well no not really this is all made up so i i having not having not seen singing in the rain when i saw babylon the first time i knew that you know it covered a lot of the same ground they were about the same era whatever and then obviously the song and the movie are in babylon but then watching singing in the rain i'm like there's multiple scenes in Singing in the Rain where I'm just like, oh, this scene is, like, just just in Bab. Like, they just did this scene again. <laughs> yeah. Great. Cool. Yeah. Which I had already felt that way about Babylon in relation to um, Boogie Nights. There's multiple scenes hmm. in, in uh, Babylon that I'm like, this is beat for beat a scene from Boogie Nights. And, like, hey, I get it. Boogie Nights, great movie. But, like... You can't just do that scene again. Kind of. <laughs> that is almost, I feel like, a big part of my, a big part of my kind of uh, criticism of Babylon. I guess is that like so much of it feels kind of cribbed from other things. So much of its like visual style, so many of its scenes, so many things about it. It's inspired, <laughs> right? At the same time, like I do think there's a lot of really great craft in this movie. I think this movie looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the soundtrack, the score for this movie by Justin Horwitz is really, really good. If there's anything Chazelle likes, it's jazz. It's ba 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 ba. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> that should be our our. No, I think "Singing in the Rain" has to be our song for this episode. But um, <laughs> we got to put some some uh, Horwitz jazz in there somewhere too. I feel like just have it running in a low level in the background. Bump, 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 bump. But yeah, um... <laughs> the themes, the the, the 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 central theme in this movie is really good. I think they use it uh, in a lot of fun ways. Where uh, I think it's like a similar melody they take into different contexts 
a lot mm-hmm. of the more like somber context but then i think i think it's the same or a similar melody in the kind of brighter more fun context mm-hmm. as well yeah uh so you're kind of this movie is basically you know a la boogie nights it is a i'm in love with this industry and then i'm ruined by it and it's sad <laughs> and uh but then at the end it was all a great time oh my god yeah <laughs> Yeah, just another quick thing about the score. Uh, the the sort of like tinkly piano sort of uh, mm. Manny Nelly theme um, is probably my favorite piece of music in the movie. Because it's played on like an old piano too. So it feels like kind of like a slow ragtime song. Yeah. Yeah, the music in this movie is fantastic. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's like a, it's a mostly an ensemble movie. Another one of my criticisms is that it like starts as an ensemble movie and then... I feel like doesn't quite commit to it, but I don't want to, I don't know. I like this movie. I don't want to like criticize it. I just have so many things. There's so many things about it where I, I find like questionable. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't know about this. You know, <laughs> this movie has been shit upon a lot, which well, is, <laughs> which is the opening perhaps, scene of this perhaps movie. Perhaps apt because this movie has a lot of shit in it. Literally. <laughs> I remember when this first came out, I saw this, before it was released wide I, I i got to go to a preview screening of it because oh. I'm, I'm special but um no it's because i live in new york city is why so i remember i tell me like oh i saw babylon last week and they're like oh like how was it because i remember it was it was advertised as like big like crazy but kind of you know it Prestige-y. was being adver- as a prestige movie and the, the first thing i would tell everyone is like it's way grosser than i thought it would be <laughs> It's just there is so much vomit and poo and piss and blood and ooze and it's just it's a really icky movie in that there's so many like gross fluids in it. Right. I I appreciate it in a way. This movie wants to take an era which you'd think the approach to this era would be very very staid, very uh uh very restrained like this is the golden era of Hollywood. I'm going to wax poetic about it, you know? But then this movie's just like, nah, we're going to put lots of fart jokes in here, you know? <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's an interesting way to approach, you know, a juvenile approach to something that would not otherwise be approached in a juvenile way. I think that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, another sort of, like, kind of gripe i have with this movie is like how exaggerated it feels in certain respects like i know demon giselle has said many times in promoting this movie how it's like he felt like so much portrayals of this era are that kind of like austere sort of like ah oh, the golden age right and he was like oh no people partied and did drugs and like you know had orgies and elephants poop pooped on people and he was like, no, we, we should, like, no one's made that movie. Like, let's see that. Um, but I feel like... Respect. Right, yeah. But I also feel like this movie, it, it feels so much like a modern person's idea of what that time was. Which is, I mean, literally what it is. But it it is very loose with sort of, I guess, reality. Like, it takes a lot of rumors and sort of makes and puts them into the movie. It does a lot of things with just, like this is like the culmination of all the stories that people have told about this era, not necessarily mm-hmm. what this stuff actually looked like. Yeah. I mean, I conceptually have no problem with that. 
it, it does maybe spread some misinformation around. They are all composite characters, right? Yeah. It's not Clara Bow. It's not Anime Wong. It's... It's Lady Faye. It's not Clara Bow. It's Nelly Leroy. It's not John Gobert. It's... What's his face? John, Jack Conrad. Which I do... I think it's good that he changed all the names, even if most of the characters in this movie have a pretty clear real-life analog that he based them on. Mm-hmm. Fatty Arbuckle also. Yeah. Uh, yet another thinly veiled, you know, Fatty Arbuckle composite character who is just a gross creep. But yeah, it's like taking the kind of, you know, the unknown story of how things went down with Fatty Arbuckle and going, it's the most dramatic version, you know? Right. Yeah. It's like, it is everything this movie is cranked up to 11, which is the appeal of it, really. Like, that's the fun of this movie is just how wild and, you know, full of debauchery and yeah. and all that stuff oh, although it's i don't know I've, I've seen this movie three times and i think i've enjoyed watching it every time but at the same time i'm like i don't know if i think it's good <laughs> <laughs> no that's the thing is that like the movie is yet i respect so much about it yeah like I, yeah yeah like it the movie is just like i'm gonna do what i want to do i'm gonna do something crazy and I'm like, I respect it. I respect the chutzpah, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it might not end up being a, a good movie, but it's enjoyable to watch, especially in certain parts. And mm-hmm. there are certain scenes in this movie that I think are like, I love, are like incredible <laughs> scenes. Yeah. Two, like, there's two extended scenes that are kind of the silent era and sound, like early sound era scenes of like shooting a scene. And they're very pointedly drawing comparisons between the two of there's this really long extended, not even seen like a just section of the movie where they're filming multiple different silent movies on the lot. It's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's just, everything is happening. All, like one set is on fire while they're trying to shoot a scene next door. And they're like, don't worry about that. Like we're, we're, we're busy here. <laughs> and it's like, everything's moving a million miles a minute. And like, people are getting, killed on horseback because they're filming a battle scene and then it's like hard cut lunch and everyone's just eating their slop and then it's like all right we're back in and suddenly you know the 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 knights are fighting again and like the people are dancing and i think this movie does really capture the like creative energy of being on a set Hmm. of like it is it is certainly cranked up to an absurd degree like every scene in this movie is absurd but that I think especially the end of that scene where there's like these two parallel scenes being shot at the same time that have almost fallen apart many times, right? There's the the sort of Ruth Adler, who's the sort of Dorothy Arzner analog character, is shooting her like raunchy, I don't know, Western, Western I guess. Western comedy, yeah. Nellie Leroy comes in and just like wows everyone with her with her ability to cry on camera, which I think was a real Clara Bow thing that like she could just cry at the drop of a hat and then stop just as quickly. And that is being intercut with at the same time, uh, uh, Spike Jones is playing a, uh, a, a German, I think unnamed German director who feels kind of, uh, Von Stroheim inspired perhaps. Oh, very much so. I didn't realize that was Spike Jones. <laughs> yeah. And they're filming this big battle scene and the sun's going down. They don't have a camera and 
Manny, the sort of like one of the lead characters of the movie, has to like go and get a camera from the rental place and won't give it to him. And he's like steal an ambulance to get it back, and he gets it back just in time when they get the shot at the last possible second. And it feels so good. Yeah. And everyone yeah. cheers. And it's like that is how it feels so often making a movie. It's like That's cool. This this is a disaster. Everything's going wrong. This is never gonna work. Oh my god. What this is a terrible day. And then at the last minute it finally like you somehow every the collective willpower everyone involved comes together and you make it happen and it's a beautiful moment that pretty much literally happened to me when i was <laughs> or a similar sort of feeling happened to me making the short film that i did oh uh recent not recently it was like two years ago at this point but so i like i like how well this movie captures that and then the other scene is the the trying to shoot sync sound and it it is just a disaster. Uh, but uh, yeah, at, at the end, it's like it, they get one take that's fine. And, yeah. everyone cel- and everyone celebrates like, you know, as if they've been saved from a disaster. Like is and then it ends. Yeah. With the camera guy falling out of the booth and they say he's dead. <laughs> and then we're into the next scene, which is maybe the best ending to a scene in in. I don't know. I don't want to say any movie, but it's it's uh it's it's great. It's it's probably my favorite singular moment in this whole movie. It's just that <laughs> thing of the camera guy flops out of the booth and they check him and they just he's dead. <laughs> You're like, how do I feel about this? <laughs> it's indicative of much of this movie. It's I, I don't know how I feel about this. Weirdly enough, that moment I'm totally on board with. I'm like, no, that's great. I love this. <laughs> That's just the right type of mean-spirited for me. And yeah, speaking of talking pictures, like this has a moment in that a lot of movies have where someone watches the jazz singer and goes, yeah. everything's changed now. You know? <laughs> I think this is almost like the most on-the-nose version of that. They do that in in The Aviator. They do it in Singing in the Rain. But this is like watching the... You know, you ain't seen nothing yet seen at the New York premiere and then running to a phone booth and saying, everything is about to change. <laughs> and then we it cuts directly to the, you know, trying to shoot the scene yeah. on a soundstage, which is so similar to the one in Singing in the Rain. Yeah. I do think I, I like the one in Babylon a little bit more just because it's so batshit insane. It's yeah, it's 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 a lot like more tense and upsetting something that i think is notable about this movie is that so many of these scenes are kind of constructed in almost this like curb your enthusiasm style of you are like something horrible is about to happen and you're just (laughs) like waiting for it to happen through the whole scene yeah no that's true a thought i had watching about these movies uh like on consecutive days was that like they do both feel sort of exemplary of their respective eras kind of right like they're both about the exact same time period but one is made in the 50s one is made in the 2020s and like the 50s movie feels like such a 50s movie right it's like it's big it's colorful it's light it's joyous the 2020s movie is like anxious and really long but also super fast-paced and like excessive and enormous and it's like and they cuss. It's not. It's not. They cuss so much. <laughs> it's not really a comedy. It's not really a drama. It 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 feels very of its 
of its era, I guess, mm-hmm. in that way. And and as much as I can sort of pinpoint what the current era of filmmaking is, like it it feels like a movie that came out last year. You know, I wouldn't mistake that from for a movie made at any other time. <laughs> I wouldn't mistake it for a movie made in the nineteen fifties. No, certainly not. A lot less cussing back then. No CG elephants. Hey, that was a real elephant, you know? Not in the party, I don't think. I think it was a real elephant in the party. I don't know. Look, we gotta, of... we got, we got to ask Damien. I know that they built an elephant ass that the poop came out of <laughs> because uh, there was someone they I couldn't think it get the been... elephant to poop on command. There was someone I saw like on the internet posted a thing that was like, I saw this in LA like you know a year ago, and now I finally know what it was for. <laughs> Wow. I mean, speaking of all that, this is a movie that does a little bit of that movie nowadays set in old times thing where it's kind of people say things. This is not the worst culprit of it, but where people Hmm. are like, oh, there's this fella, JFK, who's, uh, (laughs) you know, who, uh, who, who is this Speaking upstart another young, recent young film. senator? Another recent three-hour-long movie. I don't know. And there's this scene that almost feels like the most meta scene in the movie, where Brad Pitt's character and like another kind of movie producer type mm-hmm. are in a bathroom. Uh, they meet each other in a bathroom, and they are uh, talking about the the upcoming sound movies, and. <laughs> You know, they're like, oh, like, sound movie, like, like Don Juan, uh, which is a nice little reference. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, no, like, real singing, talking pictures, like you're there. Uh, and then then Brad Pitt goes, you think they'd want that sound in their movies? And then right right on cue, someone goes. The, the loudest, <laughs> wettest poop sound ever recorded. And it's really loud in the mix. It's like. <laughs> The loudest sound in the movie. And, and then, then, yeah, the, the guy's like, why wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. Which is like, oh, uh-huh. you know, it's like, it. it's not a terrible joke, but it, it is like so, like, yeah, juvenile and just silly that it's like, uh, what, what, what is this movie? What am I watching? <laughs> um, one of my favorite reviews of this movie is by uh, Katie Walsh. Um, she has like a long written review, but the one on Letterboxd is just, is this a love letter to cinema or a suicide note? <laughs> it's a little. Which, right. Cause this movie is so much of this movie is like, oh, the magic of the magic of Hollywood, the magic of movies. Isn't it great? And at the, all, at the same time, so much of it is like, look at how it ruined these people. Yeah. I right? mean, the, the thesis of this movie in many ways, which is a not a unique thesis is hollywood chews you up and spits you out and ruins your life but it's also magical (laughs) well yeah we could talk about the scene at the end of the movie (laughs) so this movie so after after like half the cast of this movie has died like this movie has a lot of characters in it but i feel like it it focuses to me kind of on some of the less interesting ones like I feel like it sets up all these characters and then kind of follows the the very kind of traditional like movie character that you'd expect a movie like this to follow, with maybe the exception of of Manny. Manny is sort of the the main point of view character for the majority of it, 
Jack Conrad and Nellie Leroy are the, like, big, old-timey movie stars. But then they have all these other characters. There's, you know, there's Sidney Palmer, who's the, like, black jazz musician. There's the uh, Lady Faye, who's the, the Chinese act- actor slash uh, singer slash uh, intertitle writer, yeah. which was a real job. And it's, like, I, f- I do feel like they get a lot less screen time than the sort of, like, famous movie star people. One of the things that I know this movie is also trying to be about is, like, the, the, the unsung people from old hollywood right like the people that we that we don't hear about as much the and it's like yeah but you don't actually like talk about them as much in this movie either yeah i mean the ways that it does talk about them like um you know sydney palmer is kind of meant to be uh, a bit of like a louis armstrong type i guess Mm -hmm. um and was it it was louis armstrong who was in those kind of early um early review movies right Mm mm-hmm uh i mean there's a scene where uh in in so everybody's getting corrupted by hollywood and sort of as a way of demonstrating how manny is corrupted there are scenes where he tells sydney to darken his face with like uh i don't know like burnt cork makeup yeah uh to make him match with the darker skinned people in his band so that the nobody mistakes this for a mixed band and it can play in the south uh and then he also uh fires lady lady jew uh because she's a lesbian and uh she's giving uh nelly Leroy bad press by being a lesbian and you know it, it talks about the kind of discrimination that happens at that time. And it's, these are sad scenes, but it's also like, because they're ancillary characters, like their suffering is getting used just as kind of fodder for another character's development, you know? Mm -hmm. Which I mean, at the end of the day, I do feel like this is Manny's movie. Like, yeah, he is ultimate. Like he's the first character we meet he's the last character we see it is about mostly about his relationship to filmmaking in hollywood but yeah that was a i think i think i on like subsequent rewatches that i was like oh yeah they, i feel like this movie could have i don't know it's already three hours i don't think it necessarily needs more to it but it's like it's it's maybe it's an example of it kind of biting off more than it can chew almost like it's yeah. trying to do so much within its runtime that some stuff feels like it's a little less developed than maybe it could have been hey they could have uh they could have spent more time developing it rather than going to toby mcguire's dungeon but uh true there yeah, you go <laughs> not my favorite scene in the movie i think it's because that that whole section feels very boogie nights inspired there's a lot of like long scenes of just debauchery happening and so, some of them look fun some of them look not fun <laughs> yeah 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 they, they get progressively darker as the movie like there's like the initial party scene which is already pretty dark someone overdoses uh, people get injured, right? There's like, and then right there's a scene sort of more towards the middle where Nelly Leroy gets bitten in the neck by a rattlesnake, and people get hit by cars and things. And then yeah, the one at the end where they go to Tobey Maguire's dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, we kind of flash forward. Manny is forced to leave Hollywood because he uh, killed someone in in Tobey Maguire's dungeon. We then flash forward to 1952, and he's the uh, year singing. Yeah, the year singing yeah. the rain came out. 
and he's he's back in Hollywood with his with his family. He's like, "Hey, I used to work here." And then they're like, "Oh, go go explore." And he goes he walks into a a local theater and just walks into the first movie playing and it's singing in the rain. And he's like, "Wait a minute. <laughs> I saw all this stuff in real life." And then he has a weird like fever dream of uh the Matrix and Avatar. <laughs> and then the movie's over. Right, and that that fever dream is him. You know, he sees singing in the rain. He's inspired by it, and he starts crying. And then has... we, we flash back to like all of the like a bunch of scenes earlier in the movie. Like you know, we kind of see uh, all the early scenes in the come. movie of like exactly, and then it goes into this kind of wacky uh, sort of uh, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Sort it's of like... abstract montage of film history. It goes yeah. from. It goes from, you know, the Edward Moybridge, you know, horse running. To the, the train arriving at the station. It's, right. And then it's like, boom, 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 boom. It's like Melies stuff, you know, uh, uh, early animation, you know, early early sound movies, 30s movies, 40s movies. It's like going through everything. And then it, it gets up to the Matrix and then it ends on Avatar, <laughs> which is just very weird for one thing. <laughs> and then it gets into an even more abstract thing of just sort of like, you know, uh, dyes and, and chemicals. That was in, cool. In I like that part. I do really like that. I think that's very cool, especially with a bunch of jazz over it. And the movie ends just on Manny's face, sort of taking it all in. But a lot of people have made fun of the fact that there was a clip of Avatar in this movie, and it, it is very funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember, it, like, people like to share screen caps of movies on, on Twitter or Instagram and just caption it with like, yeah, the movie title and the year. And I remember someone did put just a, a picture of Avatar, and it said Babylon 2022, um, which is a great joke. But yeah, it's a it's a lot of movie. Yeah, there's a lot of things I really like about it. There's a lot of things that I there's not even things that I hate about this movie. There's just things I find questionable. Mm-hmm. Things that I'm like, I don't know if this was a good idea. But hey, you know, I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm glad it exists. Yeah, it's probably my least favorite Damien Chazelle movie, but I still. I've still seen it three times. I saw it twice in theaters, once in 70 millimeter. You know, in, in sort of picking movies to watch for this review episode, it was one of the things like, well, I guess we got to watch Babylon, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of movies that cover some of this era, but I feel like this just felt like a good catch-all as sort of like a lot of the, it's inspired by a lot of the people that we've talked about, a lot of the movies that we've watched. It felt very appropriate. As opposed to something like Chaplin, which covers like, a lot of the 1910s and also a lot of the 1930s and 40s. So it's like, that's such a, that's in an even broader scope, even though it's only about one person. I don't know. We could have watched like the artist, I guess, which is again, also like about the transition to sound. Every movie set in the 1920s about filmmaking is only about the transition to sound. That's yeah. the only interesting thing. I forgot I guess that every... we had the artist in the running for this episode. I guess <laughs> everything else, right. A lot of the other stuff that happened, during, I guess we could have watched Shadow of the Vampire, which is about Nosferatu. Yeah. That's one movie. I do feel like a lot of their movies about 1920s filmmaking tend to be like that, like hyper-focused on a specific movie mm-hmm. or are just about this sort of very brief time period of like 1927 through 1932. Uh, but speaking of things that are uh, too long. This episode? Let's not let our episode be that way and get into what we're all here for indeed the, the top tens of the 1920s before we start i think 
I think both of us uh, found this top 10 to be way more difficult than the last two that we did. Yeah. No, this was agonizing, honestly. There are so <laughs> many great movies from this time. And yeah. my short list was 20 movies. And mm. even cutting it down to that felt wrong. Uh, we could throw out some honorable mentions, but I feel like it would be a little spoilery. So No, yeah. Let's just go right into it. Shall I start? Sure. All right. Number 10. Number 10. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm. Starting right at the beginning of the decade. Yeah. Caligari is great. Visual splendor. There's really no other movie like it. I feel like I feel like any movie that's like Caligari is only that way because it's trying to be like Caligari, you know? Yeah. Like even amongst German expressionist movies, it feels really unique in just how far it takes its like set design and surreal visual stuff. It's the most German expressionist movie, and it's honestly yeah. a little disappointing that more don't look like this. Right, yeah. It's usually like, oh, they have some like dramatic, you know, high contrast lighting in them. Whereas this is like, oh no, the whole movie looks like a, an expressionist painting. Yeah. Um, which rules. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't do a whole lot necessarily with the camera. Like, it doesn't have a lot of like weird multiple exposure stuff or some things that maybe some later German films do. But um, it it does feel very unique in its in its visuals for sure and also just it's in its storytelling like it's using those visuals for a very specific reason mm -hmm. not just to be weird and wacky but to really bring you into the you know the fractured mind of its character yeah i will say the story is probably the weak point of caligari it's still pretty good for when it came out though like yeah. the idea of it yeah. uh, the idea of a movie like being told like in flashback and that flashback being revealed to be like not reliable I think is really cool. Yeah. Like, I think that is almost like such a cliche now of like, Ooh, what is real? What is it, man? Like, wh what can you try? Like that thing of like scenes and movies that happen and then are revealed to have not actually happened or to have been delusional. If they had been done before this, uh, I'm not aware of it. I don't know if many people are, I don't know if there was any documented examples of it. Maybe there was and it's lost. Who knows? But this is like, it feels like a, a, a big sort of like, uh, a narrative experiment that really paid off. Yeah. So Caligari is really good. And this was yeah. one of the toughest things because it's my number 11. That's what I mean. That movie, Cabinet Director Caligari is my number 10. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what was your number 10? My number 10 is, and I, this did not expect it. Mm. My number 10 is Wings. Ah. I liked Wings a lot. I thought it was a really, really well done war epic. In fact, like war movies are not generally my thing. I'm not like, mm. like, I don't really care about like military action. You know, I just watched Top Gun Maverick and it's fine, but like, it's fun. Oh, but it's, like, it's really good though. It's fun, but like, who it's cares? It's the wings you know? of this of today. <laughs> but like, they're very similar movies. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> But uh, Wings is so well executed. It's kind of long, but it moves at like a really nice clip. Mm -hmm. uh, the action scenes are so good. And yeah. like the, yeah. the aerial photography is amazing. The effects are amazing. The emotions in it are super well done. Uh, and yeah, it's just like a really like it sweeps you up emotionally. It's a great time. It's a yeah. it's a Hollywood movie, baby. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah it's it's one of those things where it's like it's 
just it's as impressive to look at now as it was then because it's like yeah an airplane like crashing into another airplane is always going to look crazy <laughs> when it's real you know yeah my number nine is a movie that i think is maybe this is less about the movie being good per se and more that it's just a movie that i really like a lot and it's the lost world I had a feeling this would make it like, onto your list. <laughs> the Lost World, there's a lot of problems with The Lost World as a movie, but it also is just like fucking dinosaurs on a <laughs> mountain, and then they bring a dinosaur back to London, and it wrecks London. Oh, yeah, this movie is, cool. is so cool that I couldn't not put it on my list, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I even put it above Caligari, because I I think just for just my my general enjoyment level, yeah. Uh it's pretty great. It has some some really dumb shit in it. Um it has a character in blackface which I hate that is totally just like get that like you could cut it out of the movie and it would just improve it on all fronts. But the the dinosaur stuff is is really 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 cool. Willis O'Brien really crushed it. Um I think a lot of just some of the other just uh, like adventure things of, you know, climbing stuff and trying to cross a chasm on a on a felled tree and things are like fun adventure scenes. So uh, it's, it's too much of a Glenn movie for me not to include. (laughs) I I feel like I haven't been uh, as there are few movies that have made me as jazzed as the moment when the dinosaur gets out in this movie. Yeah. And I'm just like, hell yeah. Wreck it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Great. Great stuff. Uh, my number nine is Nosferatu. Mm, good movie. Which is a very good vampire flick, really effective, really spooky, uh, and it's a classic for a reason. It's such a fun watch, yeah. and it's just it's just real good. It's just a real good vampire movie. Yeah. Every time I've seen it, I've I've been not necessarily surprised, but it's like, oh yeah, this holds up so well. Mm-hmm. Like it really does. Like the the visuals of it, just kind of the pacing and like general creepiness of it too. Like the the tone of it really comes across still. I think, which is something that can sometimes be lost by like you know the makeup not being as good as it would be now or what you know. There's it all holds up really well, and it's like there's parts of it that are really genuinely kind of unsettling and creepy yeah purely just through like performance and you know filmmaking and that sort of thing and it was our our introduction on the podcast to fw murnau who yeah made some of the best movies of the silent era for sure for sure my number eight is the thief of baghdad which again is like just a movie that rules (laughs) yes 100 super fun douglas fairbanks at like he's really good in zorro but he's even better in thief of baghdad i think yeah yeah i think we said on that episode like it is it is infectiously joyful much like uh singing in the rain like you watch this movie and you're just like oh yeah, this is fun yeah aladdin owes so much to this movie for sure uh it's so filled with like cool locations weird creatures magic uh escapes and stunts and it's yeah every moment of this movie is a joy it's it's such a it's such a rollicking good time yeah 
rocking good time. I think all of these things are just going to be, yep, good movie, good movie, <laughs> super good. My number eight is Man with a Movie Camera. Mm, getting an old documentary uh, representation. Yeah, yeah. But or it's a non-narrative movie representation, maybe. I don't know if Man with a Movie Camera is technically a documentary. It's a not. documentary of the making of itself. Ugh! I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> More than usually when people uh, apply yeah. that kind of thing. Like I said in uh, the previous episode, uh, yeah. Man with a Movie Camera is a movie that I used to not like, and now I think it is a really, really cool, playful, uh, and experimental and interesting, just like, I love what cinema can do let's explore what cinema can do what let's let's use the kino eye to really like mm. look at the world in a new way and it's yeah it's a good time i think for a city symphony it uh, there are other city symphonies that just show you the city and this one is doing something more interesting along with it mm-hmm. it's uh yeah it's great man with a movie yeah. camera it does have that yeah i'm glad you said playful because i feel like that's how a lot of it feels of it does kind of feel like zika Bertoff is out there and people are like why would you film two cameras looking at each other and like a car going through and or whatever crazy stuff he's doing and uh i feel like his answer would just be like because i can because like no one's done this before like because it looks cool <laughs> and i i do really like that aspect to to his stuff and that that may be in, in particular my number seven is the cameraman Hmm. Uh, another movie about filming things and multiple exposures being weird another kino eye film (laughs) kind of right because it's like uh there is the bit where buster keaton films a bunch of stuff for a newsreel company for uh uh was it warner brothers right or MGM. mgm yeah and he comes back with the reel and it's all very you know ziga vertov esque like people diving in reverse and like multiple exposures of street scenes and like a battleship next to a car or whatever. And, uh, and they're all like, what is this? Get this out of here. We hate this. But it feels like Buster Keaton, the person, right? Like filmmaker was like, no, this stuff's super cool. Right. Um, that's not why I picked this as my number seven, but it's a fun little detail. Um, I think this movie does feel like a, I don't think it's the best Buster Keaton movie, but it does kind of feel like a, a culmination of all of his efforts as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, it has a real good, but very simple narrative hook to it. I think the sort of like romantic story works really well. I think in a lot of his earlier movies, the sort of, the sort of romantic interest is almost the, an- the antagonist in that they're like, he's trying to impress a, a girl for a reason but like we never see why he likes her you know like there's never a real sense of like chemistry between the two it's just sort of like there is girl i need to show her that i am man i'm going to you know crash you know classic go on it set up <laughs> you know i'm gonna go fight a war on a train whereas this movie it feels like there's a real genuine kind of like romantic chemistry between between him and uh, hmm. i think sally is the she definitely gets more to do than other yeah love interests yeah. in these movies i think that and like one week is another good example of that 
and uh also just has like some really amazing buster keaton gags it has the like 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 the the running up and down the stairs bit which is like so simple and it's how it looks but you think about the effort it must have taken to make all the stunts of him during the like gang war which i don't know if we mentioned this in that episode when like the legs of the tripod are getting shot off that's a real person with a gun just shooting the legs off a tripod off camera and so it 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 just and that like the ending of it too is like so great and so satisfying Mm. of like the reveal that like oh the monkey was filming the whole time is (laughs) every movie should end with a reveal that the monkey was filming the whole time right it's Um, it should have it should have been a fake out at the end of uh sky captain and then uh and then there was a monkey filming the whole time yeah exactly exactly babylon should have uh, after the movie theater scene, <laughs> we, we found out that uh, a monkey actually was filming the whole time. Yeah, good movie. My number seven is a bit of an odd one. It's not a feature film, hmm. but I think it's really special and impressive and is capturing some emotional nuance that you don't get in a lot of stuff, uh, is Menel Montant. Hmm. I I really want to watch this again. It's only half an hour long, but like I think that just the complexity of this, it feels like a fifties French movie, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, it feels like proto new wave, and mm-hmm. and it it's just so like emotionally complex and uh and effective uh, without being cloying. It's not saccharine mm-hmm. like a like a Chaplin movie, uh, but it is like real life and kind of yeah, just upsetting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very it's a very competently made movie, mm-hmm. which is is nice to see and competently made, and it also can back that up with actually being good. Yeah, my number six is Metropolis. Hmm, classic. I mean, it's Metropolis. What is what is there to say? Good movie. Um, I mean, it's it's a classic for a reason. Like, it's the visuals of it are uh, a clear, just sort of like, yeah, they're amazing. But I I think that it's I think like we said on the on the episode, like I like how it's 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 a movie that's at least trying to kind of grapple with very big ideas mm-hmm. and feels very of its moment, kind of of when it was made. And uh, and and has just been so influential on so many things. It is like mind-boggling to watch it. I think right. I did the thing where like I went down a list of like twenty different things. I was like, "Yep, that 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 that." Like all these little moments or scenes or visuals have been reused in other in other things because they're so they're just good. They're iconic. They're you know they have a lot of weight behind them. So yeah, I'm about to go see it with live score tomorrow. So nice. I'm I'm hype about that. Yeah. Was this your first time seeing it? Am I remembering no, that right? No, I'd no. I'd seen it okay. uh, at least twice before, I think. Okay. My number six is Safety Last. Maybe the most iconic, one of the most iconic visuals from, uh, from the silent era. But this movie is just like th- that showstopper of an ending p- part of this movie. It nothing's like it it is so tense so funny it it does such an amazing job at what it's doing and i think that like it wowed 
the shit out of both of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we watched that it. was one we got to see in a theater with a live score. So I think yeah. that somewhat helped. But I have since rewatched that movie and it, it's still great. Mm-hmm. And it's still jaw dropping to watch. And it's like it is it's tense and funny and it's funnier for how tense it is. And it's more tense for like how funny it like the comedy like relieves some of the tension. But that then only lets it build again. Kind of. It's, yeah, it's so good. My number five is Nosferatu. Ah. Spooky movie. Yeah. Do I have anything else to say about Nosferatu? I don't know. Real creepy. Uh, yeah, we, we just talked about it. I don't know. It's Nosferatu. Go watch it. <laughs> okay. My number five is He Who Gets Slapped. Mm. Which uh, I <laughs> I bring up all the time to people uh because i'm just like yeah this is how wild silent movies can get you know like yeah like just plot wise this thing is insane <laughs> and just like where it goes from one place to another but it sells it damn it it is just like such a well constructed movie it honestly like for what it is it probes at some really like deep ideas uh, just based yeah. on like what is going on, uh, and it got it's got a dude being eaten by a lion. Like it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a fun. It's such a fun one. I think it does a great job of putting together like some comedy, some tragedy, and some like meat to chew on. You know. Yeah. By a lion. Yes. Lion is a great method of murder in in any story. I think. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's another one that feels like I watching it. I was like, nothing else is like this movie. I've never seen something that is quite. I've seen movies that have similar, like, some plot elements or whatever. But yeah, the the kind of unique combination of tones and yeah, the 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 level of just like dread that is infused through that whole movie. But at at the same time, it has someone get eaten by a lion at the end in like. As a as murder, yeah, it's it's a good one. My number four is Manuel Montan. Oh, <laughs> I think that's the only short that I put on my list. Yeah, same. Because spoil, spoilers for the other ones. This movie totally blew me away. I had basically never heard of it until like the week that we recorded, and it's yeah, it it's incredible. It's um, I mean, as we had just said, but the um. The scene on like the park bench with uh, the sister and the old man and she's like eating the bread is just like thinking about that scene gets like gets me like choked up a little bit. It's yeah, so that just good. happened to me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like such it's such incredible filmmaking in in a way that feels ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Something like Wings feels like it is kind of exemplary of like amazing 1920s filmmaking or like metropolis of like the scale of it the sort of uh the the use of visuals to tell a story without dialogue all that stuff whereas no Monton is definitely that but it's so kind of intimate and heartbreaking and also kind of creepy and yeah it's it's really really good oh yeah I think that for people who are into drama, Menel Montant is a great place to start with silent film. It's short. Mm. Uh, But if you're into comedy, a great place to start with silent film and where I started with silent film in many ways 
uh, is my number four, which is Sherlock Jr. My number three. So let's talk about it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this movie is it's it's just perfect. It's so good. Like like yeah. The stunts uh, it are is, it's a masterpiece. The stunts wow you. The comedy sells so well, and the the meta scene of him falling asleep and going into the movie is some of the most inventive stuff I've ever seen. Yeah, and it's it still has that feeling of how did they film this? I I think it was on one of the um the like corridor crew YouTube videos, which uh if you don't know are a bunch of VFX artists who watch scenes and movies and try to break down how they think it was done. And that's like, they don't know, like it's hard for them to figure it out. Like, because I think, especially with modern visual effects, you can be like, Oh, is, you know, they just built that in a computer and then composited the two things together, whatever. Whereas if you're doing stuff all in camera, like they had to in the twenties, it's like the amount of effort that went into it is kind of mind boggling. Right, because there's like when he's in the different scenes, he's like traveling between different scenes of the movie, and they're all match cut and they're all composited into a theater, like on the screen of a theater. It's like you have to film all these different things, get them to match perfectly so you can cut between them seamlessly, yeah, without Buster really moving. Like he has to end a scene in one place in one position, go to a completely different place, like up a mountain or to a beach or whatever. Assume the same position so that when the shot starts, he's in the same place in the frame. And then take all that footage and then run it through, like, a mat and things like that so that it, it appears on a movie screen with an audience in front of it. Ugh, the way crazy. that I kind of imagined it was done was, like, maybe they, like, took a piece of glass and then, like, traced around him at the end of one shot and then, like, put <sighs> it in front of the camera and that's like yeah. to line him up for the next one, but like, I don't even know. Maybe it's, it's but that's, crazy. That's the sort of like cool inventive shit that I feel yeah. like doesn't happen anymore, right? Because it's so it's so much easier to do stuff that it's like a lot of the inventive solutions feel like they've kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. Which is the reason why I I like when I am making things on my own. I like doing things sort of in a more low tech way, I guess, because it's like I enjoy that like hands on level of filmmaking even if stuff doesn't end up looking as good sometimes like i really love cool props and like mechanical gags and things like that and so naturally i love buster keaton movies and i think <laughs> i think sherlock jr is probably my favorite buster keaton film like of all the shorts and all the features that i've seen like sherlock jr is so good it's the best it's the best yeah. my number three is metropolis which we talked mm. about I yeah. this used to be my unquestioned number one, and I feel Ooh, like it like and it's dropped two slots. It's dropped two slots. I like, I think I'm just bothered by the way that it muddle, muddles its message, and so I feel like that like I don't know it knocks it down a little bit. Plus, there are just movies that I've seen Metropolis a good number of times, and there are movies that maybe I get a little more swept up in. I'm not trying to say that any, I'm I'm just saying negative things, but this is my number three silent movie. Yeah, right. The, That's Metropolis... only to explain how it has dropped two slots <laughs> from being number one. Metropolis yeah. is still an amazing, amazing film. I'm so excited to watch it again tomorrow. Mm. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. The set design is so cool. Uh, the ideas that it's playing with are awesome. The props are great. 
the story has a lot of really cool elements it's 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 just so good it's so cool uh it feels even weirdly like relevant now with its ideas of like artificial intelligence and like replacing real people with like false images of them it's like it it gets into like using technology in order to like further for like petty reasons that end up affecting like entire populations of people yeah and talking Um, about how like the whims of rich people like we were talking about the beginning of this episode with the decision to move to sound how the whims of rich people can just tear like terribly alter other people's lives mm -hmm. yeah uh talk about like heavy themes you know yeah good movie yeah my number two is safety last Mm. which we just talked about but like good good golly i i love safety last (laughs) i bought the the criterion blu-ray of it after we saw it because one because it was on sale but also because i i love safety last it's so even outside of the the amazing finale of climbing up the building like i think a lot of the other gags in it are still really good silent comedy stuff like it it that section is definitely that's what makes the movie like a like comedy masterpiece to me mm-hmm. but it's not like the rest of the movie's bad or boring like the rest of the movie's also fun and cool so it's like that's just it gives you a lot during the entire rest of the thing of him just going through the you know his job at the department store and dealing with all of the wacky hijinks there and then it ends on the just the absolute showstopper of like movie stunts in like in all of time you know what i mean like it's every, people who do stunts now are still just like yes they do last rules like we can't top <laughs> that and yeah it's like a combination of like really simple ideas of like for, the forced perspective of like shooting on a rooftop but making it look like you know having a false wall so it looks like he's hanging you know 20 stories up when he's actually he is 20 stories up but there is a ledge below him but it's like because it's all done in camera it, it feels so seamless and it doesn't feel like an effect at all it doesn't feel like a doesn't feel like trickery it just it just reads as what it should oh and it's so tense it's so tense <laughs> it's so tense it's a nail it's like biter every every single gag just ratchets the tension up so much but is so funny at the same time incredible incredible film i want to go watch all these again (laughs) yeah my number two is battleship potemkin Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) it is i'm I'm kind of trying to come up with new noises to react to each one of these (laughs) gotcha (laughs) battleship potemkin is such a landmark film i had i was blown away when i watched it i'd seen it a few times before but uh seeing it in context i feel like it's one of the ones where seeing it in context i'm just like oh my god like this is such a leap it is so impressive everything that it's doing the speed of the editing the it's making like such uh such a like concrete emotional uh like case for itself without having a central character and the action hits so hard like the 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 horror is gut-wrenching it is such a well-done movie it's so good yeah yeah so yeah number two uh you're making me regret not even having that on my list <laughs> because <laughs> yeah battleship Tempkin is another movie that is like kind of a masterpiece and is like definitely a classic for a reason and there's you know it's uh 
it's definitely one that I, you know, I watched in film school and gets brought up in like every, or not every, but like a lot of books about film history, like the development of, of filmmaking in it for, for good reason. Like it deserves all of that because it's a, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. But what's the best movie? My number one is, I think was probably my favorite silent movie before we started this. And I think remains is Sunrise. A Song of Two Humans, which uh, mm. is not perfect, but is the 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 highs of it get me. It gets me so emotionally invested, and I also have so much respect for like how well made it is, and it it has the sort of like fun experimental nature of something like the Ziegfeldov movies. Like it's it's trying a bunch of stuff sort of visually and through the editing and things like that it's deceptively simple right it's like it's characters don't even really have names but they they sort of occupy these kind of archetypal uh places in storytelling but it's also like really fun in play like it gets super dark but it also gets super silly and funny and it somehow managed to like reconcile those two things i know you kind of disagreed on that point (laughs) but it's like the first time I saw it, I, that was, like, the most impressive thing about it, I thought, was, like, it, how can it start in such a, like, dark place, and then 30 to 40 minutes later, it's, like, a romantic comedy. And it's, like, <laughs> they were about, like, he was about to murder her. Like, how did this happen? And it does make that leap kind of quickly upon rewatching, but, um, yeah, I'm, like, I simultaneously, like, so impressed by, like, how well made this movie is, but I am, I also do find myself getting really emotionally invested in it and that's like i don't know that's that's like what more can you ask for yeah i mean you said it all it's a it's it is a very good movie and uh as soon as i watched it i was like i want to watch it again because Mm. i think that my my immediate snap decision about it uh was a little unfair (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, doing this podcast has not had any effect on you, and uh, and that it was <laughs> it was your favorite. No, in this I, I almost feel like if anything, it made me appreciate the movie more because I was able to see it in its full context. And like, yeah, I think it's just a, a a testament to how much I like Sunrise. I came very close to putting Sacred Last at number one. I mm. mean, and honestly, and maybe Sherlock Junior. Like the the rankings of mine are so arbitrary and like mean. Like I love all those movies. Yes, there's a lot of great... Yeah, all these movies are great, and the ones that we cut off are great, too. Yeah. (laughs) My number one is The Thief of Baghdad. Oh, yeah! (laughs) This movie slaps. This movie slaps so hard. (laughs) You know, it's not the most... Like, the story isn't the most good, uh, like, the most complex. The emotions are not the most complex. Like, but, like, Darn it, like, this movie is fun. Like, yeah. if we're talking quality, if we're talking, you know, if we're talking, like, it's in style, you know, it's a it's a movie. But, oh, I don't know. But, like, I don't know, like, especially from, like, an effects perspective. The effects it's are incredible. amazing like, in this film. The effects are really, really, really incredible. And Douglas Fairbanks um, is the most charismatic person to have ever appeared yeah. on a movie screen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's up there. Yeah, Thief of Baghdad, like, I would tell anyone to watch this movie. 
it is yeah, it is yeah. so fun it's so good it is a great time it's a great like adventure of watching this film uh yeah yeah it's awesome i love it <laughs> it is it is just jam-packed with with great stuff yeah like great scenes great visuals great characters great uh monsters jokes like <laughs> stunts monsters ah yeah so good yeah good movies all around those are those are our Bang top Boom. tens uh i you know what i i'm going to quickly just do my 11 through 20 uh which right. are yeah just just rattle them off caligari speed, speed caligari running. it mark of zorro jazz singer haxan sunrise the last laugh prince ahmed within our gates and the cameraman all also amazing yeah, i mean last laugh came real close to making on my list hacks and probably all of those at some point i was like that could be on the list jazz singer <laughs> maybe not but and i didn't watch it the 20s were certainly a uh, a good year for movies hot take <laughs> a good decade yes a good decade yes the 1920s were a good single year <laughs> for movies and we got another one coming up i mean the 1930s have a lot going on for them uh pre-code postcode we still got some silent movies to watch and some like you know uh hybrid movies that were you know converted to sound like halfway through i've seen some early 30s movies that aren't terrible so i know that they get their shit together rather quickly (laughs) and there's so many movies from the 1930s that i haven't seen that i have wanted to watch since forever that i'm excited now to have a, a concrete excuse to do so absolutely yeah there looks it looks like there's some really exciting stuff on the horizon yeah join us next episode for 1930 and thanks for joining us on our 1920s decade in review uh if you uh leave a comment on youtube uh if you have a top 10 of the 1920s that you want to share with us or uh send it to us as an email if you listen to podcasts, because there's nothing interactive about podcasts. True. Uh, thank you all so much for listening these past few decades. And uh, Glenn, I'll see you next year. See you next year. Bye.